Hi, I'm Ben. And I'm Josh. And this is the Bad at Magic podcast, a podcast about games, life, and other things. And welcome to episode 57. Episode 57. Ben, do you like jazz music? I, I, um, I wouldn't say I love it. Uh, I won't turn it off. And if I'm in a place where it's the mood music, I find myself going, that's nice. I think jazz is the generic background music that you can have anywhere, and no one's really going to be offended. No one really hates jazz to the degree that uh, people hate other genres of music, and so yeah. that's why I think it's so pervasive. But what has that got to do with the number 57? I also know a lot of music aficionados that think jazz is the purest form of music because it is just a pure expression of the artistic intent through music. Mm. I was hoping you'd keep asking me about what does that have to do with 57. I was going to keep blowing you off. I still don't get what that has to do with the number 57. (laughs) Well, I have not even started on my journey yet. So there was a movie made in 1994 called A Great Day in Harlem. And it's a 60-minute movie about the making of the most famous group jazz photo that there has ever been. And this photo was taken in 1958. There was a young art director named Art Kane who was working at Esquire magazine. And he was assigned to to do a, a cover story on jazz in general. And the guy, Kane, he wasn't a photographer by trade, but he was really hungry and he wanted to make a good impression on his boss at Esquire. And so he like did all of this extra work and got over 50 jazz artists of the day, like the, the biggest names in jazz, all okay. for one group photo in Harlem. I'm aware of this for a weird reason, but yeah, it was like a who's who of jazz at the, at the peak of the genre. Yes. And if you're listening to my voice, you have no idea what I'm talking about. You've actually probably seen this photo. Because in the 2004 movie with Tom, starring Tom Hanks called Terminal. Yeah, and Catherine Zeta-Jones. Yes, where he was living in an airport terminal for an, a, a ridiculous amount of time. He had that picture at the end that he showed. And he's trying to get the signatures of all the people of the jazz players on that photo. That was the photo that was taken in 1958. That was in this movie, 1994, called A Great Day in Harlem. And in that photo, there are 57 members of the uh, jazz band. There it is. Okay, that's a great film. I watched it again just a couple of months ago. I'd forgotten how much I enjoy it. Tom Hanks is the only man in America that can make living in a terminal interesting. I mean, it just had its it had its moments of beauty where you could just appreciate the the plight of a traveler or or you know the the fact that I loved the fact that he knew how to do construction and he just started building a fountain in the terminal and everyone assumed that that he that he was like approved by the union or something like that and they just let him do it <laughs> you have any you have any doubts that that's how it would go <clears throat> what's that guy doing I don't know talk to the to the foreman you know well, and they all assumed that he was on some other crew or that some like they were trying to poach some guys like there was enough bureaucracy and politics involved that nobody questioned it. Like he's doing good work. Forget it. So let him do it. Yeah. But I think the best and most memorable scene from that movie is the one where he gets embroiled because there's a guy from a neighboring country that he doesn't speak the same dialect, but similar enough that he can act as an interpreter. And there's this a misunderstanding and he's trying to transport medications to his sick father. Yes, that's a great scene. Yes, because it shows the tension of government bureaucracy and safety. You know, the government bureaucracy exists sometimes to the point where it doesn't even know why it's doing it. And you have this airport administrator that's trying to enforce the bureaucracy, that not allowing this man to transport medications. And our character, what is Tom Hanks' character's name? 
in that movie, his name is Victor Navorsky. Victor. Victor Navorsky uh, realizes, because he's familiar enough with the bureaucracy, that if this man were, say, for instance, transporting these medications for an animal, they could easily be uh, carried through the airport with no problems. But if they were for humans, then they would have to take custody of them because he didn't have the proper authorization. And so he deliberately misinterprets what the guy was saying and because there's a link uh, a gap between the airport administrators and and victor he's able to save this man and it's kind of seen it's portrayed in the movie as this triumph of humanity over the the senseless um heartless actions of a bureaucracy i don't like how we're in our very first bit and you're teeing up arguments against government <laughs> All right, well, we'll, I'll put that ball on the tee. We're going to be talking about governments and corporations today for our feature. But before we get into that, so I sent you a link this week of a video on YouTube. It was only like four minutes long. It was from the 60s. It was sci-fi author of 2001 A Space Odyssey, Arthur C. Clarke. Did you get a chance to watch it? I did watch it, and it was fascinating how well that guy. So we talk about this a lot when we talk about the movie reviews and things that are set in the future is people have to take a vector of the technology that exists and where society is going and try to extrapolate what society will look like, you know, 10, 20, 50 years into the future. Yeah. But it was insanely precise how well Arthur C. Clarke, like, projected his vector. Yeah, and he'd said something I'd said on this podcast that I haven't heard other people say before, which is why when I stumbled across it, I was like, wow, that's exactly what I was saying. And that is, in the future communications technologies will become so ubiquitous that this inevitable march towards urbanization might halt or even reverse. Yes, that because of the technology allowing us to provide services or deliver goods or be a part of the society that we live in without physically being in the society, there's no reason we can't live wherever we want and still contribute and still earn our living wages and whatever. And Amazon's going to deliver whatever we want to wherever we want in 24 hours anyway. Yeah, wow. They just keep it, they keep decreasing the amount of time it, it, to a way that seems insane. Like pretty soon it's all going to be sorted by robots and delivered by drones. And I'm not even being facetious. That's not facetious at all. It, it's unfortunate for the people that are willing to wear the diapers and, and work for their salary in the warehouses <laughs> now. But that's inevitably going to happen. Now you're teeing up arguments for a discussion about corporations. Okay. <laughs> so when I re-listened to episode 56, um, you ha you t you asked me, so Ben, do you know whatever happened to Google Fiber? And as, as I re-listened to it, I realized I, I was really caught off guard because I was, because it was something I had been tracking. I hadn't, and I didn't know what happened. And then you told me what happened to Google Fiber, and I took your word for it. But after I listened to it, I went back and looked it up, and it wasn't quite like you said. Okay. Well, I also went back and looked it back up. So please tell me how I was wrong. Oh, okay, so I, I believed you. I believed you. I wanted to believe that Google Fiber – but I don't want to – I'll get your argument wrong if I repeat it. So repeat what you said in 56. So this – yes, in general in 56, I said that – Competitors brought litigation against Google Fiber to the point where they were unable to continue. Like they gave up. It wasn't yes. worth trying to litigate. So that's what I looked up. I, I Googled that because I, I just wanted to read the details of it. And I found out two things. One, Google Fiber is not dead. It's still operational in like seven markets. And two, that's not what happened. 
in several markets. All right, so yeah, this is going to be a yeah, but back and forth conversation. Okay. So I painted an overly simplified picture of what occurred with Google Fiber. You're right. They were able to successfully uh, break into several markets. And then after in several other markets, though, you have to give me this, they were litigated by competitors because of what was seen as unfair advantages or shared access to utility lines or like several reasons that competitors brought litigation against Google Fiber to cease their operations in those new markets. And then Google made the decision that they were going to transition away from solid infrastructure and uh, invest more into wireless distribution of Internet. Yeah, so the, what I read, I, I'll say that Google Fiber suffered from the flying car problem. The flying car problem is that when you give the initial science fiction vision of the technology, everyone can grasp it. They're like, yeah, I understand that, and that would be really useful. And when you hear the idea of fiber to everyone's house, you think, why haven't they done that already? Well, there's a good reason they haven't done it already. And that's what happened. When they started trying to do this, they just ran into the good reason. It's hard to do. It's expensive to do. And it isn't necessarily economically viable. And it's not just because of litigation. So they just ran into reality, slowed down a bit, started investigating alternate ways. I mean, they were doing innovative things with what they called ultra shallow trenches and stuff like that. It was just, it was harder than they thought. And it, it stalled out. <sighs> yes, yes. And I'm going to concede I'm going to say 75% of my point here, but I'm maintaining 25% because there are several markets where they were shut down by litigation. But like I said, I looked it up the way you described it because that, that also happens. Barriers to entry, killing competition. That's the thing that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You had mentioned to me that we might need to rename the podcast. I did. So listeners... Our podcast is called Bad at Magic, and if you hearken back to our pilot episode that we recorded in Las Vegas at, at uh, the Magic the Gathering Grand Prix Vegas, which is like the premier event, which is actually coming back, but we can't make it this year. Neither here nor there. Like, we said that we were bad at magic because we were bad at magic. Now, I get text messages from Ben this past week that not only did he attend a tournament for prizes in Magic the Gathering, he won said tournament. Ladies and gentlemen, on our podcast today is an official semi-professional Magic <laughs> Gathering player. Uh, well, as, as we always point out, um, being good at Magic, there's so many aspects to it. And this is, this is for our non-Magic players out here, I want to talk to how this relates to life. The, the game of Magic the Gathering is complex enough that it, it is virtually infinitely nuanced. There's so much knowledge you can have about the about the game itself, about the library of cards that are available, about the environment that you're existing in, all of these kinds of things that are swirling around in an, about the game of magic that in order to be at the very peak of it, it requires just a tremendous amount of effort. And so for that reason, I think I will I will be perpetually bad at magic. However, <laughs> You can have a base of solid skills that translate pretty well into any environment. And sometimes you can just happen to bring scissors when everybody's playing paper. You think that's what happened at your it's, tournament? It's coming. It's happened a couple of times in my career. The time that I made day two of Grand Prix New Jersey back in 2018, it happened. Uh, and this last weekend, I played the $1,000 uh, tournament in, in the standard environment. Now, Josh... 
I don't play Magic Gathering Arena. I don't generally play standard, so I just put together a standard deck I found online, and I beat everybody and got first place in the $1,000 tournament. Man, that sounded like such a freaking humble brag. Like, well, I didn't really know what I was doing. I just threw together some things I had lying around, and I beat everybody. <laughs> but here's the thing. Uh, my son's my son's like, Dad, you're really good at this. I'm like, son, I'm really not. Like, if I ran into, you know, if any of those players I was playing against actually knew what they were doing, <laughs> I wouldn't have done as well. <laughs> wow. So it wasn't that you're good at it or did anything special. It's just all your competition was terrible. I don't know. There, there's some really good players here. In fact, one guy I played against last night when I went undefeated in Friday Night Magic, he's he uh, used to play on the Pro Tour. Uh, and I thought he... I, you know, I believed him, so I went back afterwards and I looked up, and there was a video of him beating reigning world champ Shahar Shenhar in Grand Prix Dallas Fort Worth, and he did, and he was pretty awesome. So, there's some wow. good players here. So you are so humble. You are looking for every excuse not to accept the fact that you actually won this thousand dollar tournament. Uh, it's I think it's because the mediocre at Magic podcast just doesn't have the same ring to it. <laughs> Is that where we level out? Because I'm still bad at Magic. You're good at Magic. And so we'd just be mediocre at Magic? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, I, there's something to be said about alliteration, though. <laughs> so in Standard, I was playing a deck called uh, Celestia Ramp. It's green-white, and it just makes a bunch of tokens. It's fun. I, I have always been very successful playing green-white token decks. Yeah, that's right. You introduced me to the game with a green-white token deck that was really powerful. I called it Token Goodness. And then a week later, some jerk won the world tournament with a list that was similar enough to mine that everybody accused me of copying him, which is crap. I made my deck first. Yeah. And then in modern, I play uh, uh, pawns a deck with red green. It's good times. I, I've been enjoying constructed magic lately, but you play more limited, don't you? That's yes. If I play magic now, which has been very limited lately, um, I will play limited in that format being specifically draft where I don't build decks beforehand i open packs and pick random card not open randomers i pick from a random selection of cards build a deck and then play a little tournament with that i think limited is a great equalizer in that um you can't rely on having the perfect cards you have to kind of adapt improvise and and flex yeah and it really rewards knowledge of the environment uh yes just knowing what exists out there and i have a very good memory for cards and effects and things and so that kind of helps me like plan and, and strategize when I'm playing other opponents. Now, that said, there are two types of limited. There's draft, which is what I do, and then there's sealed, where instead of picking cards from a random pool and then sharing that pool with a bunch of other players, you just get, here's a bunch of random cards, go nuts. That's way more luck of the draw than uh, anything else. Because if you open an amazing set of cards, like that gives you a huge advantage over your opponents that uh, an amount of skill just can't overcome. Right. So... Yeah, this week I also five went five zero on a league in modern on Magic the Gathering online. So if they post my deck list on like the sites that aggregate, you know, undefeated deck lists, I'll I'll put that up in the show notes as well. And going undefeated in those leagues is no easy task either. That's that's legit. Congratulations, Ben. You're getting better and yeah. better at Magic. Thanks. This is clearly indicative of the fact that you don't want to be in Barksdale, Louisiana, and so you're dedicating more of your brain to Magic and less to work. And I'm so proud of you. <laughs> Uh, well okay so you texted me something this week i had never heard of before uh that i found really cool and i wanted to hear what your perspective is on it and that's called what three words so this is so great because it's so random 
like the whole the whole thing from start to finish is just entirely random at the way it came into my life so for there's this huge long story that i'm not going to go into but for my birthday my coworkers bought me an assorted six pack of ipas um if any of them are listening to this podcast i'm sorry to tell you this i hate ipas and I, I think they got that into their mind because I once or twice ranted about how much I hated IPAs. But when they went to the store to buy me a gift, all they remembered was IPAs. I love it. I love it. They're like, uh, what is Josh like? I don't know. I heard him say something about IPA once. Yeah, they forgot the part that you said you hate it, India Pale Ale, it. which is a kind of beer. That's what you're talking about. It's a kind of beer. It's India Pale Ale. It's mom. got extra hops. It, it tastes like you're drinking a bush. But it's hugely popular because typically it has a higher alcohol content than normal beer does. Okay. Anyway, I'm not going to let good beer go to waste. And so I drank <laughs> all of them. And they were they were all bad. But one of them was this stone. It, it was from a brewery. I don't even remember the, the details of it. But what, it was interesting because I was looking at the can because everything on the can was printed upside down. So I had to like tilt my head in order to read anything that was printed on the can. And one of the things that they had in big bold letters on the side was FML which is a standard uh, internet, acronym, internet for, acronym Yeah, for F my life. But what they had spelled out on the can was, oh, and I can't remember it. Oh, it was uh, Fear Movie Lions. Fear Movie Lions. That's yeah. kind of non sequitur. Yeah, super random. And I'm like, what is this? And they had a little paragraph printed on the can next to it. It's like, oh, FML is this nine, meters, uh, nine square meter area that is in our uh, brewery that we have spray painted on the ground and put a mural about fearing movie lions. And like, if you want to know more, go to what three words. I'm like, what, what is this even talking about? And then I went to what three words, the website, and I delved into a, a realm of technology and logistics that I was not aware was a problem. But now that I know about it, it's so fascinating to me. Oh yeah. So you sent it to me and I looked mine up and I love it. it this is, this is a fantastic idea. So the idea is this company, What Three Words, has somehow digitally taken uh, three meter by three meter squares of the entire surface of the planet Earth. And they have named each square individually with three unique words. And the idea there being is that addresses aren't accurate enough. Um, GPS is unusable. So one of the great examples they gave that I loved to death was... You're going to meet some friends at a big event, like you're at a, a music festival oh. or a basketball game or something, and you have to communicate where you are. So like addresses, where on planet Earth yeah, you're like, going to meet. Uh, you we can't are, give an address. You're like, oh, or just like you're texting them, hey, we're all here. Where are you? Let's meet up. And you can't do it because the venue that you're at is just too enormous. And inevitably, you're trying to describe your location and triangulate based on landmarks because an address doesn't work. GPS coordinates nobody knows how to use. Like if maybe if you're an Apple user, maybe the location sharing function might be the thing that gets you right. there. But what, what three words does is like just send them the three words. Every nine square meters is named a unique three word identifier. Just send them a quick link. Oh, I'm here. And they will be within nine square meters of you. Wow. So they divided the entire earth into a grid and then overcame the number problem of GPS by assigning plain language vocabulary to each grid. And they're able to do that with just three unique words for every square on the planet. Yes. I don't know if they overcome language barrier. Like, for example, I don't know if German mm. squares are in German. I have not dug that deep into it. But just the fact that there are three English words that describe I mean, our house, my house is many, many square meters. And so like to describe any distinct point in my house 
I have multiple options. Like wow. my bedroom has a distinct three word uh, set than my living room does. Huh. Okay. So listeners, if you're listening to this right now and you're curious about it, go to what three words uh, and look, look it up and figure out what your three words are. And maybe sometime in the near future, you'll have this problem like Josh is describing where you need to precise describe the location precisely with and the other mechanisms you have available to you in society aren't quite sufficient. And maybe this will fill the, the niche. Scratch the itch. I would say that I would start a Reddit post and we can all talk about our three words, but let's not share our exact location on the earth with (laughs) just people on the internet. That never goes well. Yeah. So another thing that came up for me this week in kind of the context of um, going back to work is there's a longstanding tradition in the military that's not going to die easily of whenever someone's new or old and they're leaving, you have like a going away party for them. It's Yay. generally just like take an hour or two out of work, go to some like mid-tier restaurant, order lunch together, and then shout over the background music and noise to talk about their accomplishments and wish them well on their new assignment. It's also an excuse to get out of the office for about an hour and a half as opposed to the normal 30 minutes you take for lunch. Yes. But we're still on the tail end of the Delta surge of the COVID-19 pandemic, and there's all of that stuff. So we've just gotten just far enough that these aren't frowned upon. They're not prohibited completely, but there's still a lot of protections in place. And I realized I'm, I'm starting to look at what is the world going to look like post-COVID pandemic? Like, are people going to continue wearing masks? So, for instance, there's this weird thing, and I had a really awkward moment this week where someone, we went to shake hands, and then it was going to be a fist bump, and we both did the thing where our hand morphed from a hand to a fist about four times on the way in, and then made awkward contact, like turned into the gear shift or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> that's that, that's not fun. Like, so, it, sometimes I see people do the elbow bump. Have you seen the elbow bump? All right. So, yeah, I've seen all of these things and all these iterations and the problem. Here, here, what you're talking about, though, are symptoms. Let's look at the root cause of this. We shouldn't uh-huh. be making physical contact anyway. Just wave at them. Like, oh, hey, how's it going? I acknowledge your presence. I don't need to touch you to make so you feel acknowledged. I've done all of those things. But but un, at the root underneath this is the desire of humans to make connections with each other and that you still desire that physical contact. There's there's familial, formal, um, um, intimate physical contact, which is like a hug uh, or a kiss. And then there's personal, you know, tier two acquaintance physical contact that's like maybe still a hug or, or a, you know, very formal hand, a very um, uh, intimate handshake. You're talking about the one arm hug. Yeah. And then, and then there's even, even informal you still desire physical contact. Like, hello, I'm here for an interview. I'm going to show you and we make physical contact and you're like transmitting information. It's just a big part of human interaction. So I'm going to acknowledge and agree with everything that you're saying, because looking back in my entire life, there has been various tiers of friendships or acquaintances that I've had with people where I've done all of these different things that you're describing. But this is another thing maybe that COVID has taught me is I don't need any of those in my life. Because like all the physical interaction went away and I don't feel any less friendly with people. I don't I don't feel less of a connection with family members when I see them and just like, oh, hey, how's it going? Maybe that's just me, though, because I'm a robot. Yeah, it feels like we hit the pause button on that. Like everyone acknowledges that we're just kind of not doing that for a little while. But there's almost this like unspoken thing that we're going to it's going to come back. I don't. Is that just one of those assumptions that we want to 
take these COVID years and just bury them deep into the in the prehistoric like history Maybe. books thing and just pretend like it never happened? When I was doing well, when I was doing research on the 1918 flu pandemic that killed millions of people in the United States back then, uh, you can find archival photos of everyone wearing masks. And so, if we wonder what how we're going to go from like we were wearing masks to not anymore, it happened before. Well, at the same token, there are cultures where wearing a mask is accepted and approved social behavior. I feel like the one remnant of all this will be that it will be okay to wear a mask if you don't want to even even the like hostile anti-knee-jerk reaction of people saying you can't come in my business if you're wearing a mask i think that'll fade out eventually and it'll just become normative that some do and some don't fair enough i plan on wearing a mask when i go to large group functions going forward so this event that i went to was weird because they picked like one of these chain but high-end taco joints that serve like street tacos and the dining room was crowded and noisy. And they have the signs up on the doors that say, wear a mask when you come in. So you go in, you go through the line, you get your you get your number and sit down at your table and they bring you out your food. And then you start eating and everyone takes off your mask and it's crowded and you're sitting close to people. So there's this cognitive dissonance that comes up where like, what's the point of wearing a mask when I'm just going to sit next to someone and not wear a mask? It well, just that's, would... that's slippery slope fallacy. Because wearing just because you're not wearing the mask while you're eating doesn't mean you're not protecting people when you're wearing a mask in the line. Like, for example, the food preparers don't are not exposed to your grossness while you're eating your tacos, whereas they'd be exposed to it if you were standing in line with no mask. No, you're right. And, and, and I was being a little bit facetious. I understand the value of the protection. Uh, <laughs> and, and I want to talk about it a little bit. So I went, I hadn't in a while just gone to the CDC and actually read the guidance on it, as well as some research and, and recent research. And there's, you know, we talked in this past, in the past on this podcast about controls that are in place and how they protect you. And of all of the controls against physical transmission of the COVID-19 virus, the one that's probably the most important is wearing a mask for not transmitting it via the way that it's most commonly transmitted, which is someone speaking or singing or doing something with their mouth that causes little vape, little particles of saliva with the virus in it to go airborne and then someone else to breathe those in and contract the virus much more so than any of the other protections, than hand washing, than anything else. That, that is the most efficacious way of transmitting COVID-19. Not wearing a mask. So wearing a mask is most likely to protect someone because it prevents the person wearing the mask who's potentially infected with it from, uh, it, it prevents most, if not all, of the particles that would otherwise be in the air that someone else could breathe in. I know a lot of people that are no fault of their own, something about their speech pattern and the heavy saliva flow that their genetics have given them. They, <laughs> they naturally spit when they talk. Yeah. And now, post-COVID, I can just, hey, put a mask on. You're disgusting. And I wouldn't. I will feel less bad about saying that. Yeah. And we want to treat every protection you can take, like hand washing or not touching or things as if it's the same. But the most important one is the mask. Uh, the others less so. In fact, the research shows that, you know, like getting it from touching surfaces that someone else touched, at least with this particular virus, isn't that common of a way of transmitting. It just doesn't work very well. 
No, I, and I understand what you're saying there, but when we're talking about global pandemic level things, even curtailing it, you know, one or two percent is significant when we're talking about saving lives, which is why at the beginning the push was for all of these protections. And now that, like you're saying, hopefully, knock on wood, we're coming to the tail end of this thing. Let's just stick out with the one that is the best preventative measure and just ride that until this thing actually is gone. Yeah. Here's a quote from one of the articles from uh, University of Central Florida uh, quoting an epidemiologist. A mnemonic uh, is the three W's to ward off COVID-19. Wear a mask, wash your hands, watch your distance. But of the three, he says, the most important thing is wearing a mask. Compared to wearing a mask, cleaning your iPhone or wiping down your groceries are just distractors. There's little evidence that formites are a major source of transmission, whereas there's a lot of evidence of transmission through inhaled droplets. Uh, I'm still a huge fan of masking my facial expressions when I'm out in public. I can, <laughs> I still mouth swear words at people. I had, uh, I had to physically go into a grocery store the other day, Ben, and physically grocery shop, and there was there was one old lady that three separate times in three completely different parts of the grocery store cut me off to the point where I had to wait for her to move before I could go anywhere. And if I wasn't wearing a mask, she would have seen all of the swear words that I was <laughs> yelling at her. Yeah. You know, I keep thinking about something you said a minute ago when you said that you do the thing where you wave at someone to kind of dismiss uh, the need for physical contact greeting. And I realize I've been in that situation a lot. And I've even done just what you described, that there reaches a point in the social interaction where you both feel the need to make a physical contact greeting. And if you do that in that split second, you just kind of give them like a wave that says, stay your distance. It works. Yeah. Well, you've, I mean, you've fulfilled the need to do the physical contact greeting by giving a pass on it. This is one of those weird things that are like, when you look at it from the outside, it's strange behavior that humans do because it's so low level and built into just our normal human day to day interactions. You never teach. You never teach your kids when it's appropriate to reach in for a handshake or for one of these physical greetings that you're talking to, they pick it up from context from the age of two going forward. And so like trying to change that behavior feels like counterintuitive because it's just so deep in your brainstem. But yeah. it, you just don't. Just I mean, that's the thing is, is just stop it. Stop touching people, Ben, you gross so, bastard. So in this military farewell I was at, we all go in with our masks on, we get our food, we sit down at the table, we take them off, we eat, and then we reach the point it does where the, the colonel needs to go back to work and they have to say something to everyone, but it was way too noisy in there, especially if you had a mask on, no one would be able to hear. So the colonel says, let's all go outside. So we we uh, everyone goes outside and we make a, a circle, and then because we're outside that no one was observing the mask rules. And it was just this weird cognitive dissonance of the different rules you have. And I looked it up on the CDC site and they just have different recommendations for when you're outside. So we, we went to close, far, close, masks, not masks, masks, all within the space of about 10 minutes. And I was just like, what are we, <laughs> what are we, what are we doing here? What does this stuff even mean? What is it for? So stop caring about what the group does, Ben, and pick the rules that you as a person are going to abide by. If I am near people and not actively eating, I'm going to put my mask on. And if I am eating, I was at a family barbecue last night and I wore my mask the entire time that we were indoors. And if it got to the point where I was going to sit down to eat, I left. I went at least 10 or 12 feet away from the other people, took my mask off, ate, and then put my mask back on. And it's not against anything that they have. Most of them are all vaccinated and everything's fine, hunky-dory. Nobody's sick. 
But it's just those are the rules that I am going to adhere to. I don't care what the CDC says at this point. Well, the one thing I want to point out about that behavior is because of what I read about the transmission probabilities and, and vectors is that wearing a mask is preventing a person who potentially has it from transmitting it to other people. And if you don't have it, but you're still doing that behavior, then it's just a signal to other people that you care about public health and that you're doing something to prevent from transmitting it to other people. So you me, see, I'm not protecting myself wearing the mask. I am showing everyone that I care about them. Yes. Oh, I need to stop. I need to stop wearing the mask. <laughs> I don't want anybody to think I care about them. Uh, you can't fool me. Um, it's time for bad logic. Excellent. So, this because is an it's an odd because yeah. it's an odd week, and I'm biased. We're going to do a bias from Josh, and the bias that I've selected today is something that, again, like I love these cards, Ben, because everybody has experienced these in some way or another, and they just we're just putting names to it. Yeah. And you and I, having served in the United States military, have 100% been involved in groupthink. We just talked about this one. Yep. You let the social dynamics of a group situation override the best outcomes. Yep. I, I don't know. I can't count the number of meetings that I've been in with 10 plus people. And we're all tasked as a group, as a unit to come up with a, a suggestion or a course of action or a decision. And inevitably, the most charismatic person will make a case. And whether or not that's the best way to go, everybody just wants to go with that either because they don't want to seem like the outlier in the crowd they don't want to seem like a naysayer, or they just want it to be over so they can leave. It just goes like it's on rails. Yeah. Yeah, and groupthink has ugly sides of it and good sides of it. Sometimes if the right person speaks up and everyone complies, it just shortcuts what could otherwise be long and miserable, and sometimes it turns into mob mentality, and that's another name for groupthink. Another problem with groupthink is the people in the group all assign responsibility for the decision to an external source. Nobody in this room making this decision is ultimately responsible for it because it's the group that came up with it. It was a consensus we all agreed. We're sharing the responsibility for what could be a terrible decision. And this happens all the time in corporate America when they make terrible decisions, but the employees themselves are still good people, but the company's doing bad things. Hmm. There's me teeing up my more yeah. of my arguments. Good. Well, well then, that being said, it's time for bad in English. So the British have a few phrases they use that we don't use commonly in the U.S., even though we do similar things. But they're so nuanced and beautiful with their language. And this is one I heard frequently in a professional setting, even though it could be a bit unprofessional. And that is uh, they would say that someone spit out the dummy or acted like they were spitting out the dummy. And dummy is the word that they use instead of pacifier. Uh, so imagine a baby with a pacifier in their mouth that is spitting out their pacifier so they can cry. Not because they have any legitimate reason, but just so that they can make a lot of noise. And it's always used to depict someone grown as having a childish overreaction or an angry outburst in a negative situation. I see. Um, okay. Yeah. No, I concur. This is an excellent phrase and i'm trying to think of the the american english equivalent of that so like somebody yeah. throwing a fit or throwing a yeah, tantrum throwing a fit having a tantrum yeah yeah but but they aren't as they aren't as visually um stimulating as this where you can and and then they can play on it be like 
uh, I came out of that meeting and everyone's dummies were on the floor. Oh, geez. Now, you know, just, this, this is that degrees to Kevin Bacon nonsense again. Yeah, exactly. Just like <laughs> uh, everyone was acting childish and they all, all were thrown in tantrum. And so the, the imagery of imagining a bunch of grown people with pacifiers in their mouth, spitting in them out so they could cry. I've been in meetings where that has happened. Yeah, same. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, hopefully neither of us will have to do that today. So for Board Game Survivor this week, the only board game we got around to playing this week was Scrabble. I just played a game with my wife. It was a good time. I kicked her butt, uh, which almost never happens, so I have to gloat a little bit. And the, the game Scrabble is interesting because it's so simple, and it's very classic. Like, it, I, don't, I don't know if it's played in other countries, but in America, it's pretty much universal. It's right up there with, like, checkers and chess. Would you, would you agree with that? Um... Something like it's pretty close. I don't know if it's on the same tier as like checkers or chess because like I don't know if there's a house you can go into that doesn't have a checkers board. But it's it's close to the monopoly level where if somebody's going to have a board game, it's going to be Monopoly or Scrabble. Yeah, yeah. And this one, it, this one because it relies so much more on the participation of the people that are playing, it doesn't suffer from the monopoly problems. Uh, it, yeah, it suffers the other direction. Go ahead. What do you think the problems with Scrabble are? Uh, the problems, the only problems I've ever encountered with Scrabble was the problem that I had with Scrabble. Is that, um, so I've, I don't know if I mentioned this before, I'm kind of the black sheep in my family when I was growing up. Whereas uh, my brother and sister were very athletic from a very early age and they were always involved in the sports and things. Um, not saying that they didn't also do the things that I did, but I was, we were all kind of in the same lane. I was just more on the nerdy side of it. I was still in athletics when I got into high school and that sort of thing. But I was always a nerd. Whereas they were primarily athletes and still did all the advanced classes and good grades and things. But their focus wasn't necessarily the schooling. It was the, the extracurriculars. Whereas my focus was uh, you know, reading books and Dungeons and & Dragons and video games and stories and all the nonsense right. things that I did. So I read and consumed a lot more literature than than my my probably my siblings or my spouse or my do you feel like that gave you an unfair advantage when playing scrabble i'm not i am not here to say whether it did or not (laughs) all i know is just your tone of voice answered that question more than we need (laughs) all i know is the last time that i'd ever played scrabble with my whole family we were on vacation we were up in flagstaff in a cabin with like no tv no electronics and we were playing scrabble around this dining room table I was in the eighth grade and I beat everybody by light years to the point where we, I, I was never asked to play Scrabble with them ever again. Ah, you just won by too much. And it's not because I think I'm smarter or better than everybody. I just literally consumed more written words than they had. Right. Okay, so th- there's an interesting aspect to this. I don't know if it fits in any of our 10 rules. I mean, Scrabble has a goal, rules, interaction. It kind of has a catch-up feature. Um, it doesn't really have inertia, particularly if people are taking a long time on their turns. Did you guys ever have to have any household rules about length of turns? Uh, I, don't re- I don't recall because it's been so long, but I, I know for a fact that would have been a-, a problem with our family being very impatient. Like, you're taking too long. If you don't have a word by now, you're done. Move on. Yeah, okay. So it, it has inertia, surprise. You can have strategy, not a lot. Um, I don't know. It's it's only fun if you have fun playing word games. It doesn't have any flavor whatsoever, F- minus on that one. It doesn't really have a hook. Um, minimizing downtime is kind of up to you. But the Pictionary problem with Scrabble is 
how much fun do you have while playing it, it based on the participants in it? Like I can play with my family and we have a good time. We make up silly rules. We laugh. We're having a good time. When I play with my wife's family, man, they hunker down in their bunker. They stare at their board for like 20 minutes and come up with the most precise definition. They're ready to argue based on the Scrabble dictionary. And it just sucks all of the fun out of that game. <laughs> like I, I made the mistake of playing with my wife's oldest sister one time. That was a bad idea. I'm never doing that again. <laughs> I'm interested to see what you think a catch-up feature in Scrabble is. Because if I lay xylophone on a triple word score, that's it. Pick them up, ladies and gentlemen. This game is over. <laughs> well, the, it, it is that because of the randomness of the tiles, you could potentially have a use all seven in one turn, and then you get the 50 points. Like, it doesn't matter how bad you're doing. Every, any turn, you could potentially just get a whole bunch. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I'll give you that. But I, I agree with you. It's a weak catch-up feature. Yeah, that's that's almost the what is it shooting the moon in hearts? It's yeah. like it's almost thrown in there just as like uh, not necessarily. Oh, that's a great example. It's not a catch up feature so much as it's just kind of an alternate strategy that you might be able to play off of. Yeah, you know, like in Mario Kart, when when you're in last place, it, it increases the odds that you're going to get a blue shell from a question mark box. But that's that's an overpowered catch up feature. That's not even a catch-up feature because it does nothing for the guy in last place. It just We've talked about this before. All that does is make the experience worse for the guy who's currently winning. The guy in 12th is still going to be in 12th after that blue shell hits him. The only there's thing that also, changes is the top three. There's also the um, lightning bolt catch-up feature, which turns everyone miniature except for the person that's in last place. No, it just turns everybody except for the person that got the lightning bolt. and. You're, yes, you're right. There are more powerful effects that you get in Mario Kart, and they're typically fed to the people there in back. They're trying to keep everybody in the middle. Mario, Nintendo, stop it. Some people are just better <laughs> at the games. Just let us have the win. Okay. Well, Scrabble's staying on the on the list, but it, it's it's not great. I don't I don't I don't ever like. No, you're not coming home from work after on a busy day on a Friday and be like, you know what I could really do right now? Let's play some Scrabble. Yeah. It was just kind of like a lazy Sunday afternoon. I wanted to do something quiet with the wife. It's time for our main segment. Oh, geez. We got to the main segment way too early. Now we're just going to have to duke it out. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is it. Everybody's been asking for it. it this is this is the time. This Honestly, this episode should be pay-per-view. We're finally doing it. <laughs> we're throwing down the gauntlets. It's, it's uh, Libertarian Ben, all about free market capitalism versus... Hippie socialist Josh talking about how the government's going to save us all. And no, yeah, that is I, I love that characterization of this because we we kind of have these clashes that take the forms of me, me arguing that the that free market capitalism is a better answer for the problems we're facing, and you arguing that uh, that a more more influence of government is the answer to problems. Uh, and this so. <sighs> I will say this. You are the one that comes to these tables like with research and notes and having done a lot of thinking and, and, and pre-research and stuff about topics. Ben, I came like prepared for this discussion because when we decided that this was going to be the thing that we were going to talk about, I, the one thing that I had in my mind is I do not want to be the one that's unprepared for this discussion. I don't want to come Great. across like as the guy that's not like pulling my weight because I, I, I feel very strongly about this. And if we're going to do it, man, then I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it right. Okay. So do you want to kind of 
take a few minutes and give your whole platform and then we'll examine it in specific scenarios and situations? Or do you just want to have it come out over the course of the discussion? So, and this is so a little peek behind the scenes, uh, listeners, is Ben and I didn't, like we said we were going to have this discussion, but we never laid out how we were going to have this discussion. Yeah, and so we didn't make the rules. We prepared a little differently. So here's what I am proposing is a hybrid model of what we've both come up with here is I think we should both lay out our premise uninterrupted to the other person. Like just make the case. This is why I feel the way that I feel. And then we can both engage and talk and go through it back and forth on all of the different criteria and things that we've discussed in the past. Okay. How do you feel about that? Okay. So this is the thing that I was realizing as I was thinking about my feelings about government versus business. And one of the reasons that I think you keep painting me into the wrong corner is because I haven't expressed myself very clearly. And so what I want to discuss right now is what I believe the role of government should be, which is different than whether or not it is effective at that role. I I, love it. So the effectiveness argument, we can go back and forth on that about nitpicky anecdotes. Yes, and that's usually where the friction comes is, is when we're talking about effectiveness. Yes, and that is. That is where it comes in. But what I what I want to propose and this is where I'm coming from whenever I'm trying to defend government or say government intervention is the, the solution is because what I believe as the role of government should be. Um, so, I, oh, go ahead. So there's some there's something about this. And, and I think that you and I agree on the ones that are at the far ends of the spectrum. And that is there are activities out there that are taking place in the public sphere that some are inherently governmental and some are inherently should be done in the private sector. And there's ones that are obvious and we agree. Like, we don't think, I don't think either of us would ever propose that the government should be out there giving us food. Like, as far as like restaurants, I don't, I don't want to go to a government restaurant. Do you? No. I've been to several uh, military base uh, cafeterias and some of them are fantastic. All right. But this is going to be really hard if you're going to resist everything. <laughs> I'm trying to pick an example that I think is clearly something that well, should be you're, done you're, in the private sector. But here's the thing is you're already getting past me. Like you're going too far. I'm still I'm still at, at, okay. at, at step zero and you're talking about step three. So let me, let me... I, I, I thought this was step zero. And then the other roles are things that are inherently governmental, like, for instance, using violence to defend a country. You know, like we want the government doing that, not businesses. Uh, but and some businesses still do that. Like I'm not trying to resist you. I'm just like like everything can be pulled apart in every direction. Uh, but let me, but let me, in the middle are the ones where it's not clear, like public utilities or internet access or stuff, and that's where we're struggling on roles. We're just we're using the word roles in two different ways. Okay. Okay. For me, roles is before that. You're I, what I, what you're talking about. I feel like are services, and. If you're talking about services, that has to be derived from the roles of the organizations that are doing those services. So what do you mean by roles? So when I'm talking about like the government's role is and the analogy that I came up with is that the government is the referee. Pick your favorite sport. The government is the referee. The government is supposed to be a nonpartisan, non-biased third party actor that is just enforcing the rules to ensure that all the players are adhering to these rules. And so everybody can have a good time. In what universe, Josh? In in the, the universe. That's the role of the universe that we live in, Ben. No. The government's yes. never like that. That's what they're this is but you know, all right, hang okay, on. It, it could hang be on. like that if, if every every four years we change the color of the referee's uniform. You are killing me, Smalls. You're you're <laughs> you're trying 
I am talking in the abstract what I believe the role of the government should be, and you're trying to take the finished product and applying it to my baseline assumptions. Like, uh, okay, I, I get it, I get it, but I think it's important to not ignore the outcomes of a philosophy and an idealism uh, be, at the expense of the the idealism versus the reality. Because Marx and Lenin had some great ideas, but they were wrong. Like, so. Or, <laughs> you can't apply their ideas in a way that works in the real world. Where, where you're you're jumping to the end again. Where you're All talking right. about the end versions of governments, and I'm still trying to lay down my my, my assumptions for uh, okay. the construction I, of I, one. I can get on board for the idea that you can have a somewhat neutral party that's just trying to do the things that are best for everyone, and it, it doesn't have a dog in the fight. In my mind, that breaks down into three primary services that the government is responsible for. In my mind, this is my opinion only. I am not saying this is what governments do or what they should do. I believe these are the three most important things that a government should do in their role as the third party actor of trying to keep everything fair. Okay. I believe that the government is responsible for consumer protection. I believe the government should be responsible for environmental protection. And I also believe the government should be responsible for anti-discrimination. Are you deliberately um, omitting other things? I am. In what sense? You're talking about services like uh, police force and fire departments and nation state defense and that kind of thing. Yes. Uh, yeah. But I think nation state defense is as fundamental as the three you named. Uh, I think they're derived from the three that I named. How how is <laughs> how is national security derived from consumer protection, environmental protection and anti-discrimination? Well, that that's consumer life protection. Like they're protecting. Mm, okay. <laughs> All right. <sighs> when we're talking about governments versus organizations, those are the things that I find that are important. Okay. Yes, there are other things that government does outside of any jurisdiction or anything that a, that a corporation could even possibly be in charge of, like national security. Um, police forces, there are people saying that a privatized police force could be more effective in the future. So that's that's a debate. But national security, I don't think many people argue that that is the responsibility of a governing body, not a for-profit corporation. Yeah. Anybody that disagrees can read Catch-22 and that great chapter where the Snacko like, created his own separate air force that was hired by the Germans to bomb his own base. That was great. <laughs> it was also fictional, but yes. <laughs> I don't know how deep you want me to go into this because I have specific detailed examples of how the government or, or why the government has these three services to provide. Um, I don't think I disagree with you that the government should and does have a role in protecting its citizens from what? What, what are consumers being protected from? Because you're not. Oh, from from bad actors that are private corporations. So here's the thing. The other end of this coin that's Bad forming... Actors. Hang on a second. The other side of the coin that's forming my opinion is that corporations, their motivation is to make profit for their shareholders. It doesn't matter what the stated, what their vision statement is or the good things that they're going to do for the future. At the end of the day, if they're not making a profit, they will uh, fail as an industry and they will go away. So the fact that corporations are intrinsically motivated to earn profit means that inevitably some of them are going to take shortcuts. Some of them are going to break rules. Some of them are going to do things that are counter to my interest as a consumer or counter to the interest of the long-term uh, welfare of the environment or in trying to 
uh, maximize their profits, they will inevitably start displaying discriminatory practices in order to, again, generate profits as their sole motivation. And whether the, discrimina the discrimination can be active discrimination, where they actively say, thou shall not buy my product if you are of this race, creed, religion, age, or disability, or inactive. It's just completely passive where they're not enforcing anti-discrimination and discrimination just evolves naturally because we as a species are unfortunately very tribal people. Yeah. I, I don't know. You're already kind of stumbling into the areas where I can tell that you just have this deep-seated distrust of profit as a motivation. It, it's it, well, because there are historic examples before or like the government created organizations to release this where it was not just prevalent, but actively harmful to the people in the, in the, in, in the world. I'm not saying I am not saying that every corporation that has ever existed is just purely some evil mega corporation out to destroy us all for the sake of the almighty dollar. What I'm saying is that without regulation, there will be a non-zero amount of players in any sector that are doing bad things to make dollars. Yeah, but I would like it if I felt like you applied that fundamental assumption you just gave equally to the government side as well as the profit-motivated side. I completely agree because there is money involved in politics. People, the, Because people are involved in these things, that's where the corruption starts to come in. We can have great abstract ideas of wonderful pillars of these organizations on both sides, government and corporations. But the fact that people are involved is where everything gets screwed up. And okay. so, yes, money gets into politics. There's lobbying. There's um, uh, gerrymandering. There's the fact that these politicians become career politicians where this is how I've earned my living. Or that forever. we politicize things that have no earthly right being politicized, like public health. Uh, oh, that's that's dangerous because I because I have different beliefs on what public health should look like. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you have some great examples here you've recorded. I think they'll come up in the course of what I want to talk about. So do you mind if we move on? Absolutely, let's move on. Okay, so you and I, uh, you and I did something interesting back in episode thirty of Bad at Magic. If if this discussion we're having right now interests you, listeners, you can go back and listen to episode thirty, which is where Josh and I came up with a system for rating governments, and then we we went and viewed. Uh, fictional governments and gave them a rating. And after some debate between us, we came down on three things that we wanted to rate them on. Are they legitimate? Are they effective? And what's it like to live under them? And it was interesting that we found out that there were some that weren't legitimate, but they were effective. And that was, and, and surprisingly, it wasn't just if they were legitimate and effective, it was nice to live under them because sometimes they weren't. And sometimes if neither of those were true, it was still nice to live under them. So, it, it the, those three stool legs of the stool aren't necessarily exclusive of it being good to live under. Yeah, the first two don't define the third, or vice versa. They are right. separate axes on a chart. Yes. So what what I was thinking of when I was trying to get to level zero with this is what is the underlying motivation of the group? If you have a corporation, what is their underlying motivation? Now, in psychology, they talk about declared preferences versus revealed preferences. And that is, if you're observing a subject and you want to find out what their motivation is, ask them and they'll tell you. And then observe them and then you can see if they what they told you is different than what they did. Yes, because they may, may or may not be aware that their actions don't necessarily reflect their words. That's where hypocrisy comes from. Yeah, 
And sometimes, I don't know if it's hypocrisy so much as just it's an acknowledgement of that discrepancy and we just have rules about that. Like, if you say, hey, you know, why didn't you come to my birthday party last Friday? We all know you don't tell them the truth. I do, Am I not supposed to tell them that I didn't want to come? <laughs> Unless you're Josh, you don't tell them the truth. I was invited to something by my sister probably two weeks ago. And I, she invited me to something with my, my, she was going to the shooting range with my dad. She's, my dad was going to show her how to shoot a gun. Like, do you want to come? And I was like, oh, that sounds like some great father daughter time that uh, I don't want to intrude on. And she goes, if you don't want to come, just say you don't want to come. And so I text her, I don't want to come. Right. Right. So unless you're Josh, you don't do that. You come up with an excuse and it's a dance that we do. Everyone knows that, you know, you know, the the realm of excuses that are just lame excuses because you don't really want to come. We don't we don't generally align our declared preferences with our revealed preferences, but everyone understands that. So with the corporation, of course, like you said, they're out to make money. But what are their declared purposes? Let's pick one. Oh, any like it's going to be completely different depending on the the, the company that you pick. Like a Starbucks. Let's pick Tesla. Uh, Tesla. You've been dirting on Tesla so much lately. I'm going to guess. I'm, I have not read their website. I've not read their mission statement. But I am going to go out on a limb and assume their mission statement is something like delivering a luxury um, alternative fuel automobile that's great for you and better for the environment kind of thing. Uh. No, they're they're pedal to the metal on the second part of what you said. Tesla's mission is to accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. Okay, Tesla, take that mission statement and just shove it where the sun doesn't shine. Because if you really <laughs> believed it, you'd be selling these things for twenty grand, not a hundred. Yes, you're right. So, and that's and you you did the full analysis. Their declared mission is to make the world a greener place. And the revealed mission is to make a whole bunch of money by targeting the luxury segment and finding ways to drain people for all they're worth. Yeah. Yeah. Nailed it. Okay. Let's pick <laughs> another one. Let's pick another uh, bad guy. And uh, how, how about a company you're friendly towards? I think we both agreed that we like doing business with Samsung. So let's let's try them. It's going to be something generic because they make everything. They're going to say something like uh, uh, enriching the world through our amazing products. Samsung's mission is we will devote our human resources and technology to create superior products and services, thereby contributing to a better global society. Dude, Just like I, you said. I am nailing these. Yeah, ah, yeah. All right. Any corporate out there, if you're a CEO listening to this podcast, I am available for consults on mission statements because <laughs> apparently I'm, I'm really good at it. Okay. So... What is the declared and revealed mission of the United States government? So the declared mission of the United States government is in order to form a more perfect union, et cetera, yes. et cetera. You, you went right to the right place, the preamble to the United States Constitution. And I would say you could go back one step before that to the uh, Declaration of Independence, where we said that, you know, that we're, that we're endowed by God with unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, and that, that a government it should be instituted to protect and ensure those. And let's be clear. Like now that's just understood common knowledge. But at the time, that was so insanely radical. The concept that the power to rule and to govern was derived from the people themselves and not from some divine mandate was unheard of. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny that, like you said, that it seems that it was radical at the time and seems like no duh now. Okay. 
And then the preamble to the U.S. Constitution, we the people, in order to, per, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common events, defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Now, I'd like to try to align those with what you said you think it should be, unless I, you think— I think they do line up pretty well there, honestly. Like we're talking right there, we're we're talking about establish justice, justice, establish justice. That's all about which is protection, consumer protection. Yeah, ensure domestic tranquility. This is the one I think you your your three don't align with very well. Not very well. No, I didn't. I didn't think about the the, the health or safety of people in when I was considering my government rules. Provide for the common defense. That's something I left out entirely. That you brought up immediately. Right, and promote the general welfare, which I think yours cover very well. Now, if we just had the three that you said. Let's repeat them again. Uh, consumer consumer protection, protection, environmental protection, anti-discrimination. Right. If you just had those, I think you really could run into a problem when you when you need law enforcement and and you know defense against foreign adversaries. So I came up with mine in a vacuum when I wrote those down. Uh-huh. So because I really thought we were going to like constrain our arguments to corporations versus government. But if we're going to open up the whole government, yes, I left out some pieces. I, I will okay, openly admit that. That makes sense. So those are the declared preferences of government, just like we did with businesses a minute ago. What would you say the revealed preferences of government are? <sighs> so I, it depends on what level you zoom down to. Because if you sure. go down to the individual politician, they're going to have their whole agenda of things that they're going to grandstand upon that's going to get them elected which then makes them part of a larger group, whatever it is, pick your legislative or judicial body of choice. And now they have to try to influence that bureaucratic body with their individual initiatives to try to shift the tide of whatever that that organization is doing. So it just keeps zooming out until you get to the government level, which is basically make sure that this this group of 50 states that don't agree on anything don't implode and start killing each other. Yeah. Do they, for the most part, though, stand for the protection of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, uh, justice, tranquility, and common defense? You're careful now because you're sliding into the realm of effectiveness versus objectives. Because whether or not they're effective at those is irrelevant as to the stated objectives of the government. But still uh, using the vocabulary of declared preferences versus revealed preferences. And so like what is said, the revealed preferences of the government? Yes. Hmm. I think the revealed president, it's undeniable that the revealed, one of the revealed uh, preferences of the government is to sustain itself as a body. Like yes. The government wants to perpetuate itself. Yes. Agreed. Um, I think there's also kind of a hunger for power. Ah, uh, that goes, I think that goes down to individual levels. Like we've recently had some big names on television that are undeniably have revealed motivations that they want and to accumulate and maintain power at an organizational level. I will also say that there is mission creep undeniably in a lot of different sectors where once they maintain that responsibility, they try to keep it at all costs for forever. Okay. So uh, the, I, point... the, the other end of that, though, with the accumulation of power is, yes, some pe- people, some people are trying to accumulate power for their own their own welfare. But there are some organizations that are trying to accumulate power for the benefit towards the working towards the benefit of the common good. Yes. 
and similarly with corporations who are somewhat true to their ideal sounding mission statements and make the world a better place. Here's here's I think the, the difference is it comes down to I can't trust any individual organization to be a good actor in, in the long run. Like, yes, there are some good actors, but I can't trust a corporation the way that I can trust a government. OK, here's a fundamental idea I want to add to the discussion they haven't said yet. Corporations are people. Oh, don't you come at me with Citizens United nonsense. Corporations are people, Josh. Corporations are made of people. Corporations are entities. So are are governments. Uh, Okay, so that's one statement. Corporations are people. The other statement is governments are people. Uh, I I don't like the word people. People inserts way too many rights. I want, to say, I want to use the word entities. They are a distinct and separate entity that is exists separately from the people that work for them. I will okay, agree Okay, there's kind of point. a ship of Theseus thing going on here. Like how many people could I take out before the government is just like some uh, self-propelled <laughs> entity with no people inside of it? it... I, I, would theor- I would hypothesize that you could take every person out of the government today. Like when the government shuts down and nobody goes to work in the government, the government still exists as a thing separate from the people that work for it. It just doesn't do anything because it has no agency in the real world. It's still an entity in the cognitive sense, in the abstract sense. Of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Of all the bureaucracies that exist that if any, like, we could walk in, everybody in the U.S. could disappear entirely, and then 100 years later, people could walk in, pick up all the operating manuals, dust them off, and then start the functions of the government again using everything that was left behind. Um, I kind of agree with that, but I think there's been some good historical examples of other countries, uh, for instance, the French Revolution that followed the American Revolution. You know, where they saw what we'd done here, and so they tried to model what we did by just taking the paper, you know, taking the Constitution, copying it word for word, and trying to institute it in their country. And what it showed is that there's something besides just the the framework that makes it work, and it's not just the documents and the, the declared preferences. Oh, we're getting super, like, philosophical now. But, yeah, there's a cultural element to, like, just like the power of a government should be derived from the people, just like money has uh, uh, value as a concept because we all believe it does. There is a cultural aspect that empowers these entities to do the things that they do. Yes. Okay. So this get great. And you transition perfectly to what I want to get to, which is why this friction always comes up that for governments that exist with their declared preferences are always very nice and noble and, and righteous, even for really bad governments that have done horrible things in the world their revealed preferences are what they're actually trying to do. Uh, and corporations also have declared preferences and revealed preferences that I trust the system of someone desiring profit as, as its fundamental reason for existing more than I trust the exi- the system that wants power for its fundamental reason for existence. So if I have a government that's trying to protect itself and maintain itself and get pa- get and maintain power, I trust that less than a corporation that is trying to gain and get more profit. I I have to agree with you because I'm thinking about abstract concepts. I'm not thinking about actual governments. Um, but this is why one of the radical ideas of our government is that it is beholden to the people. And there are mechanisms that exist for us to hold the government accountable for its actions and its decisions. That's also true of corporations. That is not true of corporations because it is. That's how markets work. 
Oh, thank you for bringing up markets. Let me go back to one of my examples that I brought up. Okay, so Ben, the real estate market is a textbook example of a free market. Like it is literally in economics textbooks. Like if you want to look at a free market, think about real estate because there's tens of millions of people selling real estate and tens of millions of people buying real estate all the time forever all across the country. Okay. Sure. We, we had to implement fair housing laws and anti-discrimination laws to regulate that market because left completely unchecked, it was entirely and totally unfair to uh, minority groups or marginalized peoples or uh, uh, quote unquote, the abstract, the other. There are whole neighborhoods where we don't want this type of person to live here. And they were enforcing that through unfair housing and lending laws. There are unfair housing and lending practices, not laws. We had to correct that behavior with an external source. Like the Fair Housing Act came in line that says thou shall not discriminate in lending or selling of real estate based on uh, age, race, creed, gender, dis and later on disabilities or uh, political affiliations. So I, I, you picked a great example of something that there's no way I could disagree with. Because, of course, I'm not going to say I'm in favor, uh, you know, of of any of the opposite of those things. I don't hate nuclear, nuclear surety. I, I get it. But the point that I'm making here is not to tear you down. It's just to illustrate that while you can say and trust the free market. And for a lot of ways, I do agree with you that the market will work these things out on its own. The problem is people are involved in the market the same way that people are involved in the government. And so they're going to do unfair things and they're going to discriminate. They're going to do things that that are counter to a a higher sense of what a good society should be. But I don't know that the government's um, is OK. So I, I understand the value of engaging in this discussion on the terms of one idealism versus another. And you you're, you want to stay away from the discussion on effectiveness. But how effective is the government's regulation in, in, in these areas? It, for discrimination, any regulation is better than no regulation. I, so, I, yeah, I do some research on this, but th there's always unintended consequences. And, and and while you have these idealistic reasons for doing these things, it just causes problems. I, I And this goes back to the wall. Like, if you don't know the reason that this wall is here, you shouldn't be tearing it down kind of thing. Yes, yes. Chesterton's fence. Chesterton's fence. Thank you. I knew you'd have that on quick yeah. draw. There are reasons that these organizations exist. There are reasons that these bureaucracies exist, and we can't forget that. And yeah. it goes back to, yes, the effectiveness is a problem. And that's the, the ongoing debate of people like you and I that want our world to be a better place. Is there a more effective, better way that we can implement this? But the discussion never devolves to, do we need this at all? Because that answer is yes. Obviously, we need Chesterton's fence here. There is a reason for it. How high it needs to be, what color it should be, we can debate and argue that all day long. But the fact, but the only person in, in certain scenarios that can even build that fence in the first place is the government because the corporations that are responsible are never going to put it up themselves. Okay, I'm just going to completely give you this one because I agree with you that this is an area that's worthy of that level of intervention and it, that, it got, that it is a role of government to do that. Discrimination. Yeah, to, yes. Anti-discrimination. There. We, all right, so everybody yes. keeping track. I just won the argument. Thank you for coming. Uh, we'll see you all next time. <laughs> now, uh, if you want to look at, say, like the American Civil Rights Movement back in the 60s, uh, you had the federal government stepping in to prevent the state government from doing things that they considered to be discriminatory.
Yes. Uh, Jim Crow laws and the, and the like. Yeah, or school integration was what I had in mind. You know, like the, the governor of Alabama standing on the steps of the schoolhouse forbidding school integration. These things get really fuzzy as you try to figure out what the right and best ways are to do them and leave them up to the mechanisms that help them to exist. But there's no way to just institute an idealistically perfect institution. So we have to deal with what the actual, what the revealed preferences of the system are and deal with that and not just say, well, communism would be really good if we could do it perfectly. Yeah, except for every single time it's been tried, it's like the worst thing ever. <laughs> so in the abstract, in, in the cognitive realm only, communism is a perfect form of government. Sure. But then the second you start adding people into that mix, it all falls to pieces because self-interest comes into play. Yes. This is why democracy has stood as, as the worst form of government except for all the other ones. It's because it acknowledges some level of self-interest in the players that are involved in having to implement this thing. Agreed. Yeah, I think we're in violent agreement here. So I wanted to look at some notional examples of these, uh, you know, corporations versus governments, because I don't think I don't think you're saying that the government should run everything businesses to do. And I'm definitely not saying that whoa, corporations should whoa, run everything governments whoa, do. Whoa, whoa, damn it, man. You keep putting me in this corner. In no way am I saying that government should run everything that corporations do. I'm not right. saying that whatsoever. Right, right. What I am saying is corporations left to their own devices will do things that are counter to good civilization. And they need mm -hmm. to be put back in check sometimes. And the only person that's going to do that is an external third-party player that has enough agency to actually impact the corporations. Me, the individual over here, I hate uh, Agency I and power. Agency and power, yes, because I, me as an individual uh, consumer, I hate Tesla and I am not going to buy a Tesla and I can rail about how much I hate Tesla on my podcast, but I don't have nearly enough agency to stop that boulder rolling downhill that, that, that they've created. So, Do you think the government should stop Tesla from existing? Oh, for crying out loud, will you stop taking everything I say to its extreme hyperbolic ridiculousness? Okay, you, wait, You're wait, killing wait, me wait. with that. All right, sorry I set you up there. I want to make the exact same statement that you did on the opposite because I'm fine with what you just said. Uh, that Corporations exist to gain profit through filling human needs. And they are very good at innovating and cooperating within the limitations of the system that exists to do things that meet our needs way more effectively than governments can or do. I will not argue that point. What I'm saying is in their efficiency and in their motivation to create profit, uh, like their motivation is amoral. I want to generate profit. Is there some kind of impediment to being a moral actor? Yes, there is, but not necessarily. You can be a completely amoral corporation and still achieve your objectives. This is why we have to have an extra agency saying, no, you can't do bad things. You can't. Uh, another great example of this is uh, before the FDA was a thing, there was a company that was selling a, a drug to, uh, I have the whole thing right here. Hang on a second. This was in. There was a drug that was created called Elixir Sulf, Sulfanil. Oh man, it's a big word. Sulfanilamide. Sulfanilamide. I can't do it. Yep. In, in September and October of 1937, this drug killed over 100 people in two months. Now, this drug, in its powder and tablet form, had been used to treat uh, streptococcal infections all the time with no problem. It was a good drug. 
the sales department of this company, the pharmaceuticals company, went to the chemist and said, hey, there is a desire to have this thing in liquid form. Some chemist take syrup instead of a pill. Exactly. Or, or a powder that tasted bad or whatever. And some chemists found out like, oh, hey, this dissolves great in this chemical compound. It tastes good. We're good to go. They they made it. They distributed it. And then over 100 people died. And they found out that the chemical that they were using to dissolve this powder into a liquid was odorless. It had a slightly sweet taste. It was iocane powder. <laughs> <laughs> it was odorless. It had a slightly sweet it was taste, odorless, which was actually and no. It, it had a, more deadly poisons, no demand. It had a sweet taste, but it was diethylene glycol, which is an ingredient in um, uh, antifreeze, and it is incredibly poisonous. And they didn't know that at the time. They found wow. out after the fact. But there, at the time, quote: the new formulation had not been tested for toxicity at the time of food and drug laws, did not require that safety studies be done on new drugs. Selling toxic drugs was, undoubtedly, bad for business and could damage a firm's reputation, but it was not illegal. End quote. Yeah. So, uh, FDA approval. Can we, can, we, can we linger on FDA approval for a little while? I've, I've got other examples of consumer protections based on sure. laws, but we don't have. But yeah, let's go FDA approved for a bit. Okay, so FDA approved the Food and Drug Administration. That, that there's some government bureaucracy that exists that has set up some type of objective set of rules and and checks and balances to make sure that anything that's approved for consumption by consumers does what it's stated to do with with a minimum or acceptable amount of side effects. Yes, uh, in a nutshell. Yeah, we'll go with okay. that. So that when it when a government bureaucracy like that exists, it, it, it can just get out of control. Like it, it, it becomes that the approval process can take decades. And in the meantime, somebody who's waiting for a drug for a strep infection uh, just dies. And the, gov- the bureaucracy is insensitive to that. They're, they're not interested in, in rapidity of a- approving something, just thoroughness. I think you are misplacing your frustration with the bureaucracy of the FDA with the existence of the FDA. Like the mm-hmm. role. Of- I, I think they go in hand in hand. I think you can't say that we're going to have this idealistic vision of a government agency that protects consumers without it also becoming in, an impenetrable bureaucracy. But here's the thing is I, there are multiple factual statistical evidence that pre FDA the corporations and the free market were doing things that we did not want them to do. And it wasn't everybody, but it was enough to cause problems. And yes, the FDA is not the perfect administration. Yes, it's bureaucratic and takes way too long to do certain things. But at the same time, I personally would rather live in a world where my food and drugs were checked by a nonpartisan third party, maybe, maybe not, depending on who's involved, whatever, but they're checked mm-hmm. by somebody before a random jackdaw snake oil salesman gets to roll into town and sell me literal poison. Yeah. I can't deny that you picked an example where that's exactly what happened. <laughs> well, but be, like wait, that example aside, before that, there was, do you know why ketchup is a thing? There's this great documentary. I think it's on Hulu or Netflix right now talking about food. And one of the episodes was talking about the guy Heinz who created ketchup, right? Apparently, catsup was a thing on every table in America in the early, in the late 1800s and the early 1900s because it was spoiled meat and spoiled food was so prevalent in the food market in America that everybody had to disguise the taste with random additives and random condiments from their tables. Gross. Yeah. 
because they were allowed to sell expired and spoiled and rotting meat, and so they did. Uh, I, okay, I I can't get on with this one, Josh. It, <laughs> if, if people don't want if don't people don't want spoiled meat, then then don't buy spoiled meat and pay someone who will sell you spoiled Hit. unspoiled meat. I don't need the government to get involved in this. Then, and if you are an affluent middle class citizen who one has the ability to pay more for a product that's not expired, and two have access to multiple choices, then that is exactly what you should do as a consumer. But that's you. That's not everybody. There is a large segment of the population that don't have any choices in internet service providers, that don't have access to multiple different grocery stores to get their food. There's there's documented evidence of multiple urban areas that are called food deserts, where there aren't grocery stores for tens of miles in any direction. I just think it's odd that you have this vision of the government as like, Robin Hood. You keep baiting me into this. Stop it. That's an effectiveness the, argument again. The government doesn't – isn't this noble taking from the rich and giving to the poor, saving people from big evil businesses. They aren't. They're just their own flavor of big evil business. <sighs> this – I think I think where we are fundamentally disagreeing here is the effectiveness argument because I agree with you. There's a lot of things that the government really, really sucks at. But Ben, being sucky at something is preferable in a lot of situations to having nothing. As it's the absence of these these organizations has historical documented downsides to humanity and to civilization. Is the FDA the greatest in the world? No. Is our form of government the greatest that it could ever be? Absolutely not. Is the EPA completely corruption-free? There's absolutely no chance. That's not at all the argument I'm trying to make. The okay, ar- I'm going to do some kind of risky right now. Okay. Uh, the example you gave with the FDA with that uh, pr- uh, taking that drug, elixir sulfonilamide, and dissolving it in, in uh, diethylene glycol. So let's say if if – Instead of the government stepping in and instituting a bunch of new processes, let's just say this plays out in a market that so, drug sellers actually start mixing this up, selling it to com- consumers, and it just kills people, and the government does not step in and do anything. Then word would get out, people would stop buying it, and that company's reputation would be harmed. Whether or not that company would go under is completely dependent on economic forces at the time. That does not change the fact that this company's irresponsibility killed over 100 people. And you know what? In the abstract, maybe 100 lives is worth the efficiencies that we get from not having an FDA, but not if one of those 100 people is your wife or your kid. I get that. Uh, and that argument is 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 its own slippery slope fallacy. Because it, I, you... No, and, and I completely agree. That is why do you hate nuclear surety? Why do you hate uh, why do child you want protection? Why people to die? Uh, yes, I do get that, but this is that these are. <sighs> this is why it goes. You keep you keep slipping into the effectiveness argument. I agree with you that the FDA should be more efficient and better at its job, but I don't know how to do that. What I'm yeah. saying is, I'd rather live in a world with the FDA than a world without one. I'm just saying there's a cost that happens in the opposite direction that we're not as good at measuring. So bear with me for a second here. Let's hmm. say that the cost of instituting the safety protections required to prevent these changes that were happening in the formulation of this medication also cost lives. Let's say it costs more than a hundred lives. And this is the problem with these kinds of things. So we aren't weighing these life for life. Why do you hate the lives of the people that would have been saved by this elixir? (laughs) Is the juice worth the squeeze? And I, I get where you're going and there's no, unfortunately there is no good way to look at it from both 
perspectives at the same time. Right. You can't get much, data from one much, of the Exactly. We're much worse at measuring that other cost. The opportunity cost. Yes. Yes. I understand that there is an opportunity cost, but it, it, it does go back to the slippery slope argument, unfortunately, of is there work that we can do ahead of time to try to save life? And is are people going to die in the meantime? This example is also a great one because it was not necessary. There was a sales need. Like the drug still existed sure. in its tablet and powdered form. They yeah. just wanted to sell it in a liquid form because it would sell better. You're right. You're right. It was very profit motivated. It was just like, oh, this tastes bad, even though it's effective in doing its job. So this is the thing. I think this is where we both can agree on is mm -hmm. that companies like this can have motivation for sales, not for a, a societal need, not to, to, to save lives, but to make more profit in some situations that can lead to negative consequences. And that that right there is the subset of motivations that corporation has that need to be uh, regulated. Another fundamental thing we're, we're agreeing on, I think, is that when you have an I idealism, you have to factor in the fact of how it actually looks when it's implemented by humanity. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the other characteristics uh, I think we can examine on a fundamental level is how they're built, uh, how you construct them. So for a government, we've already mentioned what we call the Constitution of the United States of America. We believe fundamentally in the rule of law, which is we aren't swearing fealty or constructing our government on some type of monarchy or, you know, royal uh, inheritance of power. Rather that we, the people, agree on that these laws will help keep us safe and well as a society and therefore we agree together to uphold them. Okay. Where do you want to go and, with this discussion? Do we want to talk about how we can I'm fix I'm contrasting government? the two. No, no, just contrasting the fundamental constitution of them. And, and therefore, and we elect, we elect leaders to those ends. You senators, you judges, you executives, you go exist in our government we set up that has tricameral powers with checks and balances that will help protect and provide for all these things that we want to happen. And if you don't, we'll unelect you and put others in your place. And that's how the system exists. A corporation, on the other hand, um, they have, they self-constitute, they grow as, as necessary to fulfill the needs of the market which they're in. Um, they adapt as necessary to optimize profitability. Uh, not, they you're, are... You're talking about the actions of a corporation, not the structure. You were talking earlier about the structure of a government, not the structure of a corporation. So corporations kind of have constitutions, I guess. I don't know. Uh, this is a realm where I am. I probably have a little more first than you are because I deal with this on a daily basis. So if you're, oh. talk, if you're talking about a small business, it's a guy or a woman, excuse me, right. I should be more inclusive. There is a woman who owns the business that is... And then they set up a legal entity that's not them, like that's, a limited liability corporation. But they're or, still the owner. The buck stops with them. They make decisions if they're good, bad, and different. doesn't matter. They're the ones that make things But done. the existence of the entity is so that they aren't personally liable for the losses of the company. Yes, and that's, that's why you form legal companies. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you need help forming a corporation or need determination <laughs> which is the best structure for you... Um, my consultation hours and my rates are very reasonable. No, what we're talking about is not necessarily that, but like as a company grows. Now, if, if it's just one person, handful of employees, whatever, buck stops with them. As they get larger, most corporate, most companies, most big companies you've ever heard of are what are called legally as C-Corps. To be a C-Corp, 
that gives you access to the stock market where you can buy and sell your own stocks. Um, there's different forms of finance because that they need to. money to to operate. They need finance. Yeah, they need flexibility in financial thing. But what that does is that takes the equity, the the ownership of the company, and distributes distributes it out through Among shares. shareholders. Yes, yes, exactly. And shareholders elect a board. The board then determines who are the chief, like the chief officers, chief financial officer, chief operations officer, chief executive officer. Every company is going to be a little bit different in its hierarchical structure, but it doesn't change the fact that the owners of the company, whether it be 10 million people or one woman, they're the ones that are going to determine how their company is run. Sometimes it's through picking the people that are going to run it, and sometimes it's because they're the ones that are not only the majority shareholder, but they're also declared themselves the CEO, the CFO, and the COO. The buck stops with them. There are companies that run that way. So yes, when you're talking about efficiency, you're talking about agility, you're talking about the ability to adapt. Those are things that corporations are good at because you have such centralized power. However, the downside to having centralized power is when or if you get a nut job that's in charge of these corporations. Yeah. You want to talk about the my pillow guy for a few minutes who's imploding his whole company over the idea of his political beliefs? Or the guy that ran Zappos? Who was upholded as this this free thinker that changed the way of corporations but ended up dying in a puddle of his own vomit. So the the cost of this increased efficiency, flexibility, and agility is the increased volatility of the same company. Yeah. And and I think these things are true of any, any entity that isn't a single person, like a monarch, where it just is a matter of scale. Well, I completely agree. This is why the government is slow, why the government is bureaucratic, why the government is resistant to change, because... When you come right down to it, you don't want your entire system of government to be able to turn on a dime. Like you, right. like if the government is going to change fundamentally its beliefs and move away from one thing and go towards another, you want that steerage to be a slow, methodical, carefully thought out process. You don't want somebody to get elected and be like, okay, everybody, guess what? We're socialists now. Get used to it. Here's our new flag. It's red. There's an eagle on it. Uh, I have a new national anthem and everybody has to wear armbands when they go to school. Have a great yeah. Monday, everyone. You do and you don't. Uh, I mean, that's why we have the different like election mechanisms and turnover of the different branches of the U.S. federal government. You know, we have an executive that changes out every four years and we expect them to do rapid things like respond to crises, declare war, uh, not declare war, you know, execute war, enforce laws, things that require, you know, rapid movement. And then we have the Supreme Court that are appointed for life and are expected to not change very much and be very moribund and and true to the laws. And that's the idea. The executive is probably the most agile because running the day-to-day government, enforcing laws and enforcing the will of the people is a job that requires some amount of, of flexibility. Now, the, the middle tier there is the legislator. The people are actually making those laws. It takes a lot more to change a legislative body from one side to the other, less yeah. because of the two-party system and first-past-the-vote voting systems. Freaking the mechanics of the system are why our government is broken, people. It has nothing to do with the politicians. It's first past the post voting. Look it up. But uh, where was I? Oh, and then you have the Supreme Court. Link in the show notes. Link in the show notes. Um, Then there's the Supreme Court, which is supposed to be this unmoving body that interprets the laws and makes sure that we are staying adherent to the founding documents. The reason that we have perpetuated so long is because we have this third check that says, no, 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 your nonsensical political stuff is not going to fly here. Yeah. So 
I think that brings us to the next fundamental characteristic I want to examine. That is enforcement of will. So if you're a corporation and you want to enforce your will, you have the public that are your that are your customers, and then you have your employees. Um, the same as the government, you know, you have the people that are members of the government and the people that are the governed. So it doesn't it doesn't analogize very well. But you know, if you're a corporation and you're really trying to enforce your will aggressively, you can you could do really bad things competitively. You could be violent, I guess, but that's not going to last long. You can lay off employees. You can enforce really strict corporate rules. Uh, you, but you can try, but there's all these Department of Labor laws that are going to prevent you from doing these draconic things that you're talking about. Sure. And then at the low end, there's just you provide incentives for people to be your customers. You advertise, you improve, you innovate, uh, you make it nice for employees to want to work at your company. You give competitive wages. Those are your controls for enforcing your will. I will say this. Corporations, because of the circumstances that they exist in, have that right. In order to enforce their will, they can't. They have no real negative way to enforce their will. It's all got to be positive. It all has right. to be incentives. Incentives. This company has to make me believe that their product is superior, whether or not through it being actually superior or through right. good marketing and advertising. It's all very passive. Like I still have to make that choice, whereas the government can get complacent when it comes to its enforcement because what they say goes. Right. So at the low end, you know, they can fine, the government can fine you, they can imprison you, uh, and at the high end, they can take your life. Now, at the same token, there are also ways that the government incentivizes certain good behaviors. For example, not to blow my own horn or anything, even though I try to every chance I get, I'm <laughs> going to get a pretty substantial federal tax credit this year because I bought an electric car. I don't know if I mentioned on the podcast I bought an electric <laughs> car. It's very nice and I love driving. Yeah. So that's, okay. a, that's a way that the government can incentivize change, not just through negative consequences, but through positive ones as well. So I'm, I'm totally in favor of this. And I think that these facts that, that the government can enforce their will when it's unpopular and can potentially take your life, and the fact that, that corporations have to incentivize you to do the right thing, I think that should, be, that should serve as for the fundamental question to ask about which one should be doing certain things. This is do true. I need the people that can kill and torture and, and fine and imprison doing this? Or do I need the people that are just trying to make me want to do it doing this? Hmm. Oh, the other token, too, is like, do we want to privatize the police force and the justice system? Do we want to have, like, and admittedly, like, our justice system is broken in its um, inflexibility. It's uh, not, it's, what's the opposite of agility? In its decrepitness, in its slowness, mm -hmm. in its bureaucracy. There's a lot inertia. of inertia. Inertia. There's a lot of ways that our justice system is bad. But on the flip side of that coin, do I really want a for-profit motivated company being the ones that are deciding my fate like as a as a living person? I don't know. I don't really don't know. Yeah. Yeah, no I, I and so right at the heart of deciding which should be which, I think definitely how its will is enforced is fundamental. Another is what are the public controls on it? You know, with a corporation, the public controls are the things we've talked about. If, if, if I'm a person and I don't like what a business is doing, I can call attention to that in the media. I can boycott it. I could potentially be a whistleblower from within the company if I was employed by it and didn't like what they were doing. Uh, I could propose regulation to my legislators to make what they're doing illegal so that they could potentially be arrested for it. Or I could just not give them my money. Well, and, and here's the thing. This goes back to, I mentioned this earlier, is... As an individual, like you have some agency, but not a lot. 
And there are certain circumstances where the, the threshold of absurdity or atrocity that, a, that a, an entity can commit reaches the point where it's no longer just me or a group of like-minded people that need to take care of this. We need some, to- some sort of external powerful agency able to enforce its will to step in and, and do the things that we need them to do. Again, that. as much as I hate Tesla, Ben, like I can't stop Tesla from being a thing. Right. But I like that. For the things that don't require violence, torture, fines, and imprisonment, uh, that we can just do things that are a natural part of our everyday life, and that constitutes sufficient public controls. If we just don't give them our money, if we uh, you know, boycott if necessary, that's all we need to do. We don't need to have an election to decide if Tesla is a good company or not. You're making assumptions that, one, all of the bad things that these companies do are known, and that, two, people beyond the line of sight of these companies care at all about the bad actors. Because we all know, like, it's almost... Okay, hang on. I want to go to the space you just painted. You're saying companies doing secret things that don't affect the people that would be able to to stop them. No, people that are... uh, Companies that are doing bad things that do affect people, but the people don't associate those bad things with the company. Okay. Uh, uh, think, think, I'm, w- I'm willing to admit that, that that part of the Venn diagram may exist. Uh, Aaron Brockovich. Uh, yeah. That, that I got the I, I also think of many John Grisham novels I've read, but yes. <laughs> this is a real thing that actually happened. Is there was I had it written down. Where's the name? I, I get it. There just it some company just hey. put, you know, carelessly carelessly disposing of of toxic pollutants that are harming a population that don't realize where they're coming from. They're having children with birth defects. and Hexavalent chromium is specifically in Aaron Brockovich. That's yeah. not the only instance of chemical companies uh, infiltrating like bad chemicals into the population in general. I have others no, that I can You're absolutely to. right. I do not deny at all the role of government in affecting that. It, that because, again, like you can be – even if you were a person that had children with birth defects and all of these negative effects and you were able to somehow get the, the evidence right. and the stuff together to show, to prove the that it was The corporation will just hire a, a fancy lawyer that will be like, you can't prove that we did that and unless you can afford to do like multi-million dollar studies. You know, yeah. that, that, they'll, they'll bury you in litigation and you as an individual have nothing that you can do about it. Yeah, absolutely. On, on another – on a less violent end of the spectrum is – this is more anecdotal, so I'm willing to give up this argument at the least sure. bit of it. This is a straw man I'm setting up. Uh, we can all – everybody's probably aware that a lot of big clothing manufacturers employ what is commonly referred to as sweatshops overseas. Like they have underpaid, overworked labor forces that they've offshored because it's cheaper to manufacture in other countries and they don't have the labor laws, et cetera, et cetera. But we still buy those products. Like just because we know collectively that company A or company B is probably doing bad practices or anti-competitive things, that doesn't stop us from buying the things that we want or that are cheaper if it's sufficiently removed from our line of sight. Um, I kind of, I, I, I don't agree with that for different reasons. I think that companies doing things like utilizing the best um, searching for the best labor prices to produce a product is a benefit to everyone involved in the companies in the markets where they have lower cost labor they get work to do that they otherwise wouldn't have and the customers in the other market get more more uh low cost products i would encourage you to watch some documentaries about some of the the manufacturers that are in china 
where they have had to install, like, they have dormitories because there's not enough time for you to go all the way to your house between your six-day work shifts. They've had to install suicide nets to prevent people from, from killing themselves from okay. the overwork. So I don't, I, I don't disagree with your anecdotal exa- examples there being bad examples. <laughs> but I also, th- I also am a big believer in globalism, and I don't think that we should just be like, hey, they, they charge for less labor than we do. We should keep that at home and where we have higher labor prices. Uh, I, so I, I believe personally that there's a middle ground somewhere. That, yeah. that there should be a floor at uh, how we treat people at their job. <laughs> but I also feel like the best place for solving that isn't in government regulation. It's it's just in companies doing ethical things because I don't think companies are always going to do unethical things Company is, because nothing's stopping them. Uh, yes. Y- yes, they companies will. Companies are people. No, no. Companies are entities. Before the Department of Labor came out and before unions and before organized resistance to companies doing these unfair labor things – they had six-day work shifts. They had 12-hour work shifts. They had barely livable wages that they paid. Like Upton Sinclair's *The Jungle* is a book all about how that was prevalent in pre-industrial or in industrializing yeah, but it America. It was also fiction. Okay. I oh, don't! To... It, I shouldn't have brought up that stupid book. But this is the thing. There's again, it's Chesterton's fence all over again. There's a reason the Department of Labor and labor unions exist, Ben. They wouldn't exist if it wasn't because there was unfair practices that me as an employee, what am I going to do? Uh, I have I have to work six days a week, 12 hours a day for a barely livable wage. But if I raise a ruckus, they're just going to fire me and backfill me with somebody else. I have no agency in that fight. It has to be the government to fix that. Yeah, I want to put a placeholder on this one and save this one for for later oh man so, oh we're gonna have another knockdown drag out i thought this was gonna be the last one no well let's talk about corruption what does corruption look like in a corporation because that's what you're talking about now you're talking about abuses to the environment about golden parachutes about I, abusing your workers I, I, about this, setting up a monopoly that people can't get around this go uh, oh don't you those are it. all what abuses look like in corruption in businesses but when you're in the business it's not abuse it is a groupthink decision where I'm not ultimately responsible for any mm, one thing. That's interesting. I at the corporate. So you're saying the, it just happens, even though no one person wants to do those unethical things. I'm at the executive level. How do I increase my my productivity? It's like, hey, middle manager, can, I, I need can, you, I, middle manager, I need you to reduce the labor costs. Hey, factory guy, I need you to reduce overall labor costs, and he's gonna like, uh, well. Corporate upper heads, they're telling me I've got to either cut wages or increase working hours, and so I'm going to do one of these things. It's never the individual that's responsible for any decision. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to acknowledge your straw man and make one of my own. Because, yeah, okay, there's a room full of you know um, corporate people that are just concerned about profit, and they're making decisions that aren't necessarily trying to victimize people, but do because of the almighty dollar. Well, let's imagine instead a corporation – where there's people that are like, hey, you know, if we have a company that's responsible in the environment, that's popular right now. People will like us for that and we'll make more money. Or, hey, if we take good care of our employees, they'll enjoy working here and they'll work harder and we'll be a better company and we'll make more money. Like, okay. That- you don't, for one, don't call my argument a straw man because I'm going to point back at Amazon, one of the most uh, uh, successful companies on the planet where their employees are having to wear diapers because they're not allowed to go to the bathroom. So my son went and worked for them, and I know what it was like. And I read a book about a girl, a, a, a reporter that went and got a job and worked for them. And I, it's not, it's not, it's a straw man job. It's not. It's, there's there's people who like working for that and work for that over other things when there are other opportunities out there. They're I, not being forced to work at Amazon and have terrible working conditions. 
<sighs> they're not they, like all right so working conditions are only where they're at because of because of government intervention and i will die on this hill and unfortunately i don't have uh, all i have is anecdotal evidence to set the point i have chesterton's fence to do you point think labor unions are government controls or are they something else labor unions wouldn't be allowed if it wasn't if the governments didn't allow them there are states where labor unions are not allowed to exist because they are seen or perceived at the highest levels as anti-business labor unions are bad for business is what corporations say and at the other end of the spectrum labor unions say we are here because individual workers don't have enough agency to talk about their bad working conditions and so like I, 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 I'm not saying I'm for or against labor unions. I'm saying that they served a, an important purpose in the past. What they have morphed into might, might be more of a political organization that has too much power now. But it, there, it depends on the union. It depends on the situation. It depends on the circumstances. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I, but I agree with what you just said so completely. I don't have anything to add. Okay. So if in a corporation... Uh, corruption looks like abusing the environment, enriching those at the top, abusing oh, your workers, oh, yeah, and creating here, monopolies. Listen, while we're talking about it, labor example, uh, uh, labor and unions specifically, like I don't remember which company it was, but just recently there are still circumstances and situations in the modern day where workers are trying to unionize, and the company just fires everybody that's trying to organize into the union. Yeah. I've been in companies before where that kind of thing's going on and they're basically sending directives down to the middle managers to look out for who these people are and try to find them. And that right there, that is an example of corporate corruption. Like if a labor union is only there to represent the benefits or the working conditions of the workers, why would a company actively, not just passively, but actively disincentivize those from forming? So... Uh, we did a couple of episodes uh, a while ago back on the podcast where we talked about all of the jobs that you and I have held. I, I went through my list again in preparation for this episode, and, and I've worked for at least 20 different entities, some government, some small business, some big business, probably about half for big groups and half for small. Um, and for the most part, I found that their declared preferences and their revealed preferences are a lot closer than some of the examples we're examining. Like when I worked at Taco Bell and they talked about good customer service, I felt like they did it because they felt like it was going to make them more money. And yeah, maybe their underlying motivation was making more money, but they really were interested in providing a good tasting product that people want in a way that they were happy with. And then they found out that they were selling horse meat because they were getting that cheaper than the actual <laughs> cow meat that you thought you were eating. And when I worked for Microsoft uh, doing technical support, you know, maybe their their goal is just to try to get people to buy every brand new version of Microsoft Office that comes out so they could get the most money. But the way they were doing it was by trying to provide a word processor that was better than any on earth and then supporting it. Microsoft that was busted for antitrust because they were trying to incentivize their web browser over other web browsers. But okay, yeah, keep going. And when I worked for Best Buy Corporation and on and on, it's it, it was <laughs> the things that they were telling me to do were were in ultimately what's best for consumers because that's what was going to make them money. So I'm not denying that a corporation is never going to come out as evil. It's never going to be Doofenshmirtz evil incorporated on the side of the building. That's not what they're doing. If these companies have are doing bad things. It's, it's very rarely going to be a deliberate decision to do the bad thing. 
it's going to be an emergent quality of the structures that they put in place to try to drive profits. Agreed. Agreed. And but, but that does in the situations where that doesn't necessarily lead to them being uncompetitive in the market. That's where I think government has an important role to play. Thank you. That we can agree on because just because it's an emergent quality doesn't mean that it makes them bad. Like our yeah. eyeballs are designed very, very poorly if you're talking about uh, intelligent design, but it works and therefore it is propagated. If yeah. a company is doing bad things, but they're still generating profits, that behavior is going to continue into the future. Okay, so that leads to the thing I want to talk about next. What does corruption look like in a government? So corruption in the government looks like um, it, it looks like a megalomaniac whipping up a, a group of people to overturn a free and fair election. Yeah, yeah. it's all of those things. <laughs> yes, especially that. It's it's abuse to the environment. It's self enrichment at the top. It's worker abuse. It's monopoly, and sometimes it's also police state information control, world war, genocide, terrorism. You name it. It, it's impossible to separate the effectiveness from from the from the abstract <laughs> when we're talking about corruption in the government because we have to point at specific examples. Yeah, uh, but that's uh, why I like some things to stay in the private sector because then we don't add all those other horrible things in too. Uh, now I agree with you. There are some things that should stay in the private sector, but we will disagree on the specifics which ones should go to which category. But yeah. but. It doesn't change the fact that these private sector functions should still be regulated by an external body that has more agency than an individual, and that has to be the government. Hmm. Okay. Well, then that leads to bureaucracy. What does bureaucracy look like in a business? In a business, it's the death song. If your business starts becoming bureaucratic, it's going to die. It's going to get passed by a, a more agile competitor. If, you, if it's the government, it's the lifeblood of the government. If you are gearing up for a fight, no, sir. We're on the same side of this one. Okay. All right? All right. Because of the intrinsic fundamental motivations of industry is to earn profit, they are intrinsically motivated to be lean and efficient at every step of the process. Government, the buck stops nowhere. Like nobody in a government organization is directly responsible for their budget or for their efficiency. And so they don't yeah. care. There is right. no individual onus or impediment well to said. being more efficient. And, and that's unfortunate, but that's how bureaucracy functions. Like, like again, it's, it's, it's the Futurama central bureaucracy. It's like, it sucks and everybody knows that, but it's still an essential service that has to exist. Okay, so we didn't get to your other examples. Do they shed any light now that we've discussed all of this? Um, uh, the only thing I had in here was environmental protection, and like, let's talk about that for a minute. Okay, like I'm going to make a general statement, and then if you disagree, then I will go into specifics. Okay, companies, not all companies, but some companies will do things that are bad for the environment in order to generate profits. Agree or disagree? Agree. Okay. The only way to stop companies, like when you're talking about efficiency and leanness and agility, like it is easier. It is way easier to take all of your chemical waste and just dump it in the back lot as opposed to paying for proper destruction or distribution or storage or whatever of said chemicals. Efficiency, I will say, in certain industries will lead to environmental destruction and waste because it's just easier. If I'm a timber uh, manufacturer, if I'm making paper products, it's easier to cut trees down than it is to plant them. Uh, uh, chemical companies, like we just talked about the, the distribution of the destruction of them. Uh, um, chemical companies that come out with, with great products that like, oh, 
this has an amazing short-term effect that is great and fulfills this niche. It is way easier for that company to immediately begin selling and profitizing, uh, profitizing, I don't think that's a word, making profits on that chemical compound than it is to sit down and do, okay, what is the long-term impact of said chemical compound before they start actually monetizing it? That's the word I was looking for, monetize. Profitizing is a word. Is it? I don't know. If it isn't, it should be. You're the one that played Scrabble recently, so I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. um, I'm not going to disagree with those things. Okay. So because companies then, like if we can agree on the fundamental assumption that in certain industries of the sector, it is easier to be bad for the environment than it is to be good for the environment. That means there has to be some external source to incentivize companies to be good to the environment, whether it is preventing them from destroying it or incentivizing them to restore it or preserve it. Hmm. That is not going to come from uh, other corporations. There is no corporation that's going to incentivize its competitors to be green. That's not a thing. It has to be some external agency. I'm going to disagree with that a little bit. I think that maybe used to not be a thing, but I think it's become popular enough now that you can advertise your greenness as compared to your competitors and actually have customers prefer you because of that. But... If we didn't have any external agency making sure that you actually did what you said, if you if you're going to talk talk, you better walk the walk. Then companies right. could say whatever. No, they you're want. right. They could just yeah, sure. And 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 they do this with the things that aren't regulated. I, I no deny. I will not deny that at all. Like for instance, um, organic. Organic oh, is yeah. a thing that isn't clearly defined. Companies will stamp that all over their products without there being any clear definition of what that means. And with and without any government regulation or definition of what organic is, they will continue to do so into the future. And there are people that are willing to pay a marked up price for organic labeled products, whether or not it's actually better for the environment. Yeah. All right. So what are our takeaways from all this? Our takeaways from this is like, I, I just want to beat your head against your desk because I feel like you haven't <laughs> gotten my perspective clearly enough yet. I am I not I, I am not against companies. I Free market economies, that's the reason that America is the superpower that it is, is because we have this, oh, okay, I do have another footnote about capitalism. Let's come back to that. Because we have a free market economy, because the government, for the most part, stays out of, of the market, that's one of the reasons that we've been able to innovate and create and be on the leading That's debatable. Edge we sometimes get ranked like 20th in the world about that. But yes, go ahead. Well, okay. Like maybe we're on the downslope. Maybe we're Rome on its way out, burning or whatever. But from my little guy perspective, it's pretty great living here. I've got roads at work. I've got essential services that for the most part aren't terrible. Um, our healthcare system, I have a lot of problems with, but I still get to go to the hospital when I need to. Uh, okay, wait, wait. I want to hit timeout, and I want to I want to interview you about something. When you were a small business owner, as a, a, a in your pool business, what government regulations did you have to uh, adhere to? So taxes. Uh, I was. Uh, so you had to have your business like incorporated or LLC'd with the the local and county government. So I didn't have to. The, the LLC is a that, that's a personal choice that you make if you're going to run a business to protect. But you want to protect yourself, like if you yes, own I'll, someone's pool and it and someone died in it, you wouldn't be held liable. Well, I would still be held liable, but they would only be go, be able to go after my business assets, not my personal assets. I wouldn't okay. lose my house if something I did on my business side was uh, problematic. Sure, but, but you were okay. But you were handling hazardous chemicals. You were doing. You were constructing things. 
So I there was some things that I didn't comply with most uh, parts, some of them out of ignorance and some of them out of I just wanted to give like these organizations the finger. Right. Uh, for example, uh, <laughs> uh, in the state of Arizona, if you are if you do any work for a homeowner that is over a thousand dollars, you're supposed to be licensed, bonded and insured as, right. as a registered office of contractors. So they can, so if you stop in the middle, they can get it done still. Or if you do it wrong, they can get it fixed. Well, the idea is that it's consumer. That's consumer protection. Is like I'm naming these in terms of the protection they're providing to the customer. You're right, and here's the thing: like you're absolutely right. I should have been licensed, bonded, and insured if I was doing work over a thousand dollars. Because if I did a terrible job, the consumer now has my registered office of contractor number to go after my bond and get their money back if I disappear, if I start ghosting their phone calls or whatever. Sure. Or, or if you put too many of the wrong chemicals in their pool and ruined yeah. it or whatever. I don't know. Like there's, yeah. The fact that the government exists gives people the ability to take me to court. That's another thing we haven't even talked about at all is the, the civil judicial system where if sure. I, if I as an individual have a problem with another individual or a company, I can take them to the government who is my third party referee. Here's my evidence. Here's their evidence. Ref what's correct. Okay. But what you're kind of saying right now, maybe not intentionally, but I think you recognize you're saying right now is that not all of the regulations that supposedly exist to protect customers, <laughs> did you find worthy of compliance? For me specifically, I, and you know what, that could have burned me. There is, I could have been penalized severely. Yeah. By, but you're talking about being protected as a small business owner, not as the consumer. No, no. I could, as the business owner, I could have been penalized. If, right. if it was found out that I wasn't complying with the registered office of contractors um, uh, legislation or requirements or laws or litigation or whatever, and I could have been severely penalized, I would have been completely in the wrong. There'd be nothing I could have done to prevent that. Here's the thing, though. It never came to that because me personally, as an individual small business owner, I one, I did an excellent job. And two, my brother and my dad are both registered office. They're both registered contractors. So push comes to shove. I just say, oh, yeah, he totally QC'd all my work. It's fine. It's fine. Right. But being government, be, but being devil's advocate here is you didn't have any certified government proven way of assuring that you, that was true. Even though you I, I, said right. it was true. I told clients multiple times that I can do this work for you. It will cost you over a thousand dollars. And either they trusted me or they didn't. That's how it came down to me personally. Yeah. But there are things that I was supposed to comply with. But if you fully did all of that, it was a significant barrier to you being able to have employment and do that work and to the customers to be able to get it at an affordable rate. Because uh, you would have had to charge more if you complied with all that. I, don't, I Honestly, probably not. Like it, it was just it was mostly a time. But uh, the tax on your time it. is not insignificant. <laughs> Uh, because I broke the rules does not mean you get to be, win this argument. Okay. That's not a thing. <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay. Can I get, but, can, but, I, I put a, I have, yeah, a go ahead. I have a footnote that I need to come back Man, to. You're playing in all landmine. Uh, I want to go back to the concept of capitalism. Okay. Everybody like it's always the ultra right wing guys that are talking about, and I'm not painting you into that corner. But everybody that talks about how the free market and capitalism and competition, that will solve these problems. I always have to like just remind everyone that what we live under is not capitalism. It's not the purest form of capitalism, the same way that the Soviet Union wasn't the purest form of communism, because the purest form of capitalism allows the big companies, the successful companies to not just 
eliminate or absorb their competition, but to prevent any more competition from arising. Like there, if it was a pure market capitalism, we would be back in like the trust days of the late 1800s, early 1900s with like a U.S. steel preventing any other steel manufacturer from actually being constructed in the country because either through litigation or through bribes or through uh, uh, pressure on the suppliers where it's like, oh, I just actually can't buy the materials I need because the supplier said they'll lose their contract with their only other customer if, if they sell to me. There are anti-competitive behaviors that very large corporations can do to prevent this things from happening. And the end, the inevitable end state of pure capitalism is one company that controls all of uh, name a thing. And then now this problem that I keep bringing up where there are rural markets that have no choice, or there's only one ISP, or there's sections of urban areas that don't have any choice but this one grocery store. It's that, but it's compounded to every possible consumer of their product in the entire marketplace. And now that company has free reign to do whatever they want. What are you going to do? Not buy our steel? Like you're completely screwed and there's nothing you can do about it at that point, which is why we have government regulation against monopolies, against trusts, against even companies of the same type working together to fix prices. That's something that we actively disincentivize because while capitalism, the end state is terrible, this middle part, this middle part is great. It leads to all the things that you were talking about, the competition, the innovation, the agility, the developing niche markets. That's all of the things that we want from capitalism, but we do not want it to slide too far into that state where one company controls everything and that's the end. By and large from Wally or um, idiocracy go to Costco and it's the size of a small state. Yeah. Or demolition man where Taco Bell is every restaurant. Exactly. If Taco Bell, <laughs> if Taco Bell was every restaurant, all we would eat is horse meat. <laughs> Taco Bell sponsorship okay. opportunities for the podcast are available. Here's my, here's my bottom line takeaway from this. And that's the first legitimate um, su- um, sponsorship you've proposed in a long time. Uh <laughs> So having had this discussion, I think of an outside listener listening to it is you and I agree a lot more of the time than it might seem on the surface that it, there's just a, a little bit in the middle that feels like nuance and, and and word choice more than anything, rather than a legitimate fundamental public um, political difference. Um, and you know what? I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to Churchill here. You quoted him earlier. The the the, the, the form of government and the system of of life that we live under now is the worst there's ever been, except for every other form that's that's ever been tried. I honestly feel like our disagreement here, as far as corporations and government, is is tangled up in this this argument over what the roles are supposed to be versus the effectiveness of the current like government structure that we live under. I think that's where like the, the lines are getting crossed and the confusion is arising between the two of us. Because like you said, we agree on a lot of these fundamental assumptions about what the roles are supposed to be. And we may disagree specifically on, on certain instances of how it's been implemented in the real world. And, I, and 
pulling on that point you just made, I want to go back to what we said about three or four times, and that is we do something because it sounds like a good idea and also because there's no way to calculate the opportunity cost. And I think there's a lot of times where we do something where it feels like not doing something would be worse, but we don't know that. Uh, and that's where I tend to push back yeah. is the times where I think doing something is worse than not doing something. I agree with you. Like if we're unable to calculate the opportunity cost and going uh, one side or the other, if we make a decision, then it comes down to personal feelings and personal values on certain things. Because uh, like you said, maybe these hundred people dying would have made this company a better thing, but still been able to produce a good product. I don't know. Like if your cost in, if we differ on what the, the, the appropriate opportunity cost is, then we're going to disagree on the implementation of the, of the control. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, if you heard something that we said today and you want to join in on the discussion, we'll set up an open thread on our subreddit slash r slash bad at magic. Uh, also, there's, there'll be episode uh, specific information on our website as well as our Facebook page and you can come and join in the discussion. Love to hear what you got to say. If you like what we do, uh, consider sharing us with a friend. That's the least you can do. If you like what we talk about, maybe your friends will like us too. If you really want to show us some love, consider taking your phone out of your pocket right now and giving us a good rating on the podcast player of your choice. It is amazing the amount of visibility we can get from just one good review. Please do that if you haven't yet, please. <laughs> if you want Ben to miscategorize my ideas and for me to then immediately start bashing him for that, if you want us to keep doing that forever, consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page. And until next time, try to be a little less bad at magic. <laughs>